Hello and welcome to the Not A Victim podcast. Not A Victim is a show about learning to live a life without excuses. Today's guests are... I'm Annie Wood. And, and your name is... And Cheryl Tabler. <laughs> I'm usually... <laughs> I'm supposed to say it, but I couldn't remember your names. So we're going back. Um, yeah, so just go ahead and uh, tell me the just the first part of your story. Everything from um, childhood and just all that stuff. I was born to a Christian family. My father is a minister in the Wesleyan Church. We, you know, every Sunday, every Wednesday, we were in church. I, so when he was already a pastor yes, when you were born. Yes, he was a pastor when I was born. Mm. Yeah, my my dad was a pastor for a while, uh, for like five or so years, and I kind of know what that um, being the kid of that mm-hmm. sort of the assumptions that come with that or the standards that come with that. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So what was that like? What was it like being the the kid of a pastor from birth? Well, being a, what do you call a PK, being a PK, <laughs> I can't say it was easy. You kind of lived in this bubble. Everyone looked at you and expected you to be a certain way. I kind of thought you were maybe holier than thou, people right. would say. So when I got into college, even though I had those standards growing up, I can honestly say I did not really fully understand what it meant to have a relationship with Christ. I mean, yeah, I was a Christian, but I didn't really fully understand what it meant to really be connected to Him and... To have a personal relationship, that was a whole other level that, of being a Christian. I did not... Right. Because being the kid of a pastor, you're just so accustomed to what Christians say, what Christians do, and you just know what it looks like to be that kid. And yes. you're so used mm-hmm. to being that kid that you just, you've like learned a pattern of it. And it's not necessarily that personal or doesn't right. have to be... Exactly. And I did feel the call to ministry when I was 18. I knew God had called me to be some sort. At the time, I thought it was a youth pastor. And that was, you know, what I felt God wanted me to do. And, you know, I've always loved people. That's been my personality since I was a little girl. And so I went to college with the intention of being a youth minister. Where'd you go to college? I went to Southern Wesleyan University in Central South Carolina. It's right beside Clemson University. Right. You know where Clemson is. Yeah. I'm with you. So what happened there? And I went to college on a volleyball scholarship, and and unfortunately at a Christian school, it I wasn't what I expected it to be. You know, I expected it to be this, you know, awesome on fire school, but it was real segregated between here were the athletes and here were the Christian ministry majors. There wasn't a lot of connection between everybody at this school, and I slowly fell into the category of just the athletes and not the Christian ministry majors. My group of friends changed pretty quickly, hmm. and through the friends that I did accumulate relationships with, we partied a lot, dated the guys, probably shouldn't have dated, I guess maybe because I got attention, I don't know, I was young and naive and put God on the back burner, and the, probably the week or two before my 19th birthday, my boyfriend, he had broken up with me, he was getting ready to graduate college and just told me, you know, I don't want anything to do with you, we just need to part our ways before I graduate, mm. and of course I was devastated, you know, this guy I thought was, you know, my first college relationship was going to be meant to be and he had met the family I thought he was going to be somebody long term and and then a few weeks later I remember coming home to mom and dad's house to visit it must have been spring break about this time and I woke up and I felt really sick and I actually was remember throwing up in the bathroom and about a week later when we got back to school I told my ex-boyfriend you know that I was really sick and not feeling good something must be wrong and he said well you know I think he might be pregnant we need to take a pregnancy test and he said, you know, I've been through this before, which didn't at the time, didn't faze me. So we went and took a pregnancy test, and I was pregnant. And the first thing he said when he found out, he looked at me, and he says, I want nothing to do with you or this child. You're going to get rid of it. Hmm. And me only being, you know, 19 years old, 
you know, I was traumatized. I didn't know what to say. You know, really, you're just, you're done with me and you're done with this baby? So I allowed him to take me to the abortion clinic in Greenville and, and abort this pregnancy. I have no idea how far along I was or anything. It was just that he wanted it, so we went and we did it. You know, I was scared and I couldn't go home and tell mom because mom and dad are in the ministry. It'll ruin their church. My, this is my feeling. I thought it ruined the church. Mm. It would ruin their ministry. And you know, I couldn't embarrass the family like this. You know, I was, you know, I was the president of FC. I had all these things going, and here I am, pregnant, my first year in college. I didn't want to embarrass my family and my parents. And then afterwards, after the abortion, not many people knew. I only told a couple of my, couple of my close friends, but it really started my life in a downward spiral. I mean, I started partying and drinking more just to not think about it and. You know, just anything I could to not dwell on what I had done and how it affected my life. And the partying, the next three years just became more and more intense. I mean, I was doing stupid things and drinking and driving. There's a lot of nights that I don't remember at all. And then coming up on my senior year in college, this is where the story really begins. We had all been town, been downtown drinking. I was with, you know, like I said, some of the athlete groups. We were in downtown Clemson, actually. And we were with guys who I thought were my friends. And... They invited us over to hang out afterwards, and you know, I didn't think nothing of it. So me and a girlfriend went to go hang out with some guys that night, and I actually ended up being raped that night for being drunk. And of course, when I told the college and I told the police what happened, the college stripped my scholarship away and they kicked me out my senior year because I had been drinking, and that was against school policies. Mm. And so here at this point, after all I had been through, you know, I just I told God, I'm not. This is crazy. I'm not going to the ministry. You're obviously not looking out for me, so why should I do anything for you? Mm. And I transferred into Reinhardt College in Maliska, Georgia, and I actually tried out for the volleyball team and made it. So I went to Reinhardt College and did not, and it was a Methodist college. And I said, I don't, even if it's a Christian school, I want nothing to do with God. I'm not doing anything in the ministry. And I went in as a middle school math and science major and decided I was just going to focus on volleyball and on my life for these next few years and do what I thought was good for my life, not what God thought was good. So on June 17th, this was going into the summer after my fifth senior. I lost a lot of credits my fifth senior year in college. And I had, it was Father's Day weekend. And I decided that summer, since I was taking extra classes to catch up so I could graduate, that I was going to work a double shift at a local restaurant to make some extra money. And that night ended up at 2.30 in the morning. I ended up with my car crashed into a pole. And the car crashed on me so hard, the passenger side to the driver's side, that my brain, when they found me, was literally swelled outside of my head when they found me. And this is where I'm going to have my mom pick up as to what happened these next few hours. Hmm. Uh, she was picked up at the scene and immediately lifelined from um, Cherokee County, Georgia, to Atlanta Medical Center. At about 5.50 in the morning, we received a call from Georgia State Police asking us if we were the parents of Ann Tabler. He ran her uh, plate on her car to figure out who she was because he couldn't even find any um, identification in the car. It was so smashed. Um, long story short, he was able to tell us that um, she was lifelined. She had um, severe head injuries. It did not look good. We needed to make our way to Atlanta Medical Center. He gave me the phone number to Atlanta, Atlanta Medical Center's ER, and when I called, they transferred me up to ICU, told us where Annie was at, and 
we um, told our other children and my son left from work at his local job and we headed for Atlanta Medical Center. We got there about 8.15 in the morning. Um, Atlanta Medical Center's ICU unit is a lockdown unit. When we got there um, off the elevator, we noticed a little lady that was in scrubs but didn't really know where she worked in the hospital or what her position was, but she walked away from us. We looked at the um, volunteer's desk at the waiting room. There was no one there. I looked around and seen that the unit was a lockdown unit, and I remember asking my husband, what do we do? How do we get to her? Um, and about that time, the little lady that seen us walking off the elevator turned around and she come back, and these were, these were her words. God told me to stop and tell you everything's going to be okay. And my husband says, excuse me? And she says, God told me to stop and come back and tell you your daughter's going to be okay. And I remember saying, but we haven't had a chance to tell anybody we're here for our daughter. How could you possibly know that? And she smiled real sweetly and said, I know, God just told me. And she said, was her accident on the news? And, and I told her we didn't know. When we found out she'd been hurt, we got in the car and headed up. And she says, a red car? Yep. Well, God had told her at home when she was listening to the news and seeing the accident that the, the young lady involved would, would uh, survive and that he had a plan. Mm. And so she told us that... Um, uh, God revealed to her that Annie was um, a real outgoing person. She loved people. She loved life. People loved her. And then she says, she's a real go-getter. Now, what's ironic about that is I had said that about Annie the whole time she was growing up because she was very active. She was very outgoing, never met a stranger. And what, um, what this little lady told us about our daughter was as if she had watched her grow up. It, it was so precise. Um, and she prayed with us, explained that her name was Pat. She worked for the environmental services there at um, Atlanta Medical Center. She uh, told us that God had chosen Annie and that he was going to get us through this. He was going to get her through this and that she was chosen. Um, and so about that time, through the, through the locked doors, the hospital chaplain come by and ask us if we were Annie Tabler's parents and we said yes and she ushered us into a quiet room to wait on the doctors. I realized that um, I'm a nurse by profession. I realized that being ushered into that room meant nothing but bad news. Mm. Um, and so we sat in there what seemed like an eternity. It was probably about 15-20 minutes waiting on the doctor and they just had not come and the chaplain said is there something I can do for you can I get you a cup of coffee a glass of water or anything and I said I want you to get me back to be with my daughter because if she's going to die today I don't want her to die alone hmm. and I explained that I was a nurse that I had a critical care background that none of the equipment none of the wires none of that would frighten me that I knew what I was going to be facing and so she got herself back into ICU, got permission to bring us back. The reason the doctors had not come to talk to us is because they were working on trying to keep Annie alive. It was bad. Mm -hmm. um, her nurse explained that Georgia Lifelink had been alerted, 
which means that um, they realized on the back of her license she had signed to be an organ donator mm. um, and that she wasn't expected to live and they were they were prepared that if she did die they would um, they would make arrangements to donate her organs um, before I walked in the room the nurse stopped me and said you see on the right side of her head and I said yes she was completely her head was completely wrapped in gauze and there was a lump on the right side of her head about the size of my fist and he says that's not gauze there he said it is on the on the outside but just a couple layers and I said what are you telling me And he says the temporal lobe of her brain is on the outside of her head mm. and I asked him you know medically are there any neurological signs of brain activity and he says we're not getting any response from her at all period not to painful stimuli not to anything her pupils are very very sluggish to light to constrict but that's it it does not look good and I just want you to understand that the um, ICU doctor stopped us as well reiterated what the nurse had told us I walked in the room I walked to Annie's side and I grabbed her hand and I leaned down next to her ear and I said Annie mama's here you might look like your daddy but you got the fight of your mama and I want you to fight with all you've got if you know you can't beat this then the Lord will help me walk through this but I promise you I won't leave your side and I'll make the very best decisions that I have to for you I promise and I told her I loved her and she squeezed my hand the nurse in me thought okay is she squeezing my hand because she heard me and she understood because she was on life support at this point um, did she squeeze my hand because she heard me and knew what I said or did she squeeze my hand because it was just a reflex <laughs> Um, I told the nurse she squeezed my hand and, and he was kind of surprised too but um, she continued um, through the next few hours to really struggle um, her heart was doing all kinds of crazy things and um, she was in complete shock they were um, giving her fluids and blood transfusions and stuff to try and stabilize her around around noon I guess um, some ministers from the district of our church came in. There were four of them. And we gathered around her bed and we held hands and we each one prayed for her. And we asked for God's will to be done and told him that we accepted whatever his will would be. And from that point on, Annie really started to stabilize. It was pretty amazing. About 12.30, the neurosurgeon came in, um, said that he had to clean the wound. What had happened when she wrapped her car around the pole in the accident, we believe the frame of the moonroof come down on top of her, and it busted her head open from her eyebrow to past her ear and crushed her skull and caused her brain to swell on the outside of her head. So he had to clean all that up and um, there was coarse blood on her brain and um, broken shards of, of broken bones from her skull. And my husband, before they took her back to surgery, had prayer with the surgeon. He held his hands and asked God to guide his hands 
to guide the surgery, to guide everyone that was there. They come in to um, take her to the OR, and we're all telling her, Annie, we love you, and we'll, we'll be here when you're done. And she picks up, oh, let me back up. Um, the neurosurgeon asked if we were getting any response, and the nurse said, well, and I said, no, 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 she has responded very appropriately to her family. She may not the nurses, but she is responding appropriately to her family. And the doctor looked at me like he didn't really want to believe me and that it was, you know, mama's hopes. Um, and I understand that. But anyway, he went in the room and he says, Annie, wiggle your fingers. Of course, the left side of her body was paralyzed at that point because of the right-sided brain injury. But her right side was working and... She wiggled her fingers, and he said, wiggle your fingers really good, Annie, and she picked her hand up off of her, off the side of the bed, and put it in the air, like, see, I'm here, and wiggled her hands. Um, Annie, wiggle your, wiggle your foot, and she wiggled her foot. Annie, open your eyes, and for the very first time since we had been called um, into the hospital, she opened her eyes, and he said, let's go to surgery. He did tell us, no guarantees prognosis is still poor um, but at least we'll try and clean out the wound and get things back where they need to be and so the the OR crew came in to get her and we were all telling her that we loved her and that we would be there for her and she picked up her right hand and she made the sign for I love you out of her hands and held her hand up in the air as she was going out the room um, that's pretty amazing considering that she had major amounts of sedation plus she had part of her brain on the outside of her head um, so they took her to surgery the doctor was able to clean out the um, wound in her skull uh, remove a massive blood clot that had um, had developed there he was very concerned about her suffering a stroke because she had lost so much blood in the um, accident um, but he put the brain back in her head and um, was able to um, sew um, skin back enough to cover um, the injured part of her brain there was a hole in the skull probably the size of a post-it notepad um, that had no bones we had to be very careful protecting that part of her her head the next day she, they started working on weaning her off the vent, which is pretty miraculous. Um, and they were able to, that evening, Tuesday evening, um, get her safely off the vent. Wednesday, they had the Shepherd Center come in. And Laura Brown, which was a representative from the Shepherd Center, come in and was able to get Annie talking enough to do an assessment to see if she was a good fit for Shepherd Center for rehab. And she told us, I have good news and bad. We, Annie's a perfect candidate for Shepherd Center in our rehab program. The bad news is we won't have, we won't have room for her for at least two weeks. We're gonna have to set her up with rehab somewhere else. And I said, nope, she's not going anywhere else but Shepherd Center, she needs to be at Shepherd Center. And she said, Miss Tabler, I can't. There, there's not a place for her. And I said, by the time she's ready for you medically, there'll be a place. And I looked at my husband and I said, you got to get everyone praying again and ask, ask them to pray specifically 
to get her into Shepherd Center. My husband left the unit. He was very distraught. Walked out to the emergency room parking lot at Atlanta Medical Center, and while he was walking around, crying out to God, telling him, you know, God, I don't understand this. You brought us this far. You brought her through, and now you're telling us that they don't have room for her at the Shepherd Center. And he said, I heard God call out to me, Tim. And he said, I turned around and looked because I thought it was one of you. And he called out again, Tim. And then I realized it was God. And I said, yes, Lord, what? And he said, what did that innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph? And Tim said that there was no room in the inn. And God said, that's right. Did that stop my plan? And Tim said, no, Lord, Jesus still came. And he said, then, Tim, you have to trust me. I have a plan, and you have to trust me. And so Tim was telling me about this later. And um, in the meantime, uh, they, they, uh, Laura Brown went back to Shepherd Center, um, put in Annie's name. There's a process that they use to see if there's any way they've got a team available and a bed and that kind of stuff to get someone accepted into their rehab program and and she was initially told no there's no way we can do this Thursday morning sweet little Pat comes around she had no idea that Shepherd Center had been to talk to us had no idea what we were praying for but she said Wednesday when she got home from work God had told her Pat I want you to give Annie a little piece of yourself. I want you to give her a gift. And Pat looked around her home and she found a music box. And she said, okay, Lord, is this it? Yep, that's what I want you to give her. So she comes to the gift shop to get a gift bag and she had a beautiful blue gift bag picked out. And God says, Pat, that's not the right one. Now mind you, this is June, the month of June, getting into summer. And Pat went through the pile of gift bags and God said that's the one that's the one you need to get and so Pat says okay she purchases the little gift bag and she puts her little music box in the gift bag and so Thursday morning about seven o'clock maybe a little a little bit after she comes up finds us in the waiting room and obviously has something behind her back and says I have a gift for Annie and she told us how God had laid upon her heart to give Annie a gift and um, told us about picking out the particular gift bag that she picked out because God told her the blue one wasn't the right one. And she pulled out from behind her back a gift bag with the music box in it. And the gift bag was a Christmas gift bag of Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus in the stable. And Tim and I looked at each other, and we looked at Pat, and we said, Pat, you aren't going to believe what God's just done. And we told her um, what had happened, and we just said, God has a plan, Pat, just like you told us. God has a plan, and we have to trust him. She takes out her little music box, turns it on, and it sings, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. How appropriate, and how, um, how it put things back into perspective. That this was all for his glory, and we had to continue to trust him. About um, maybe 10 till 12 that same day, it was Thursday, Laura Brown from Shepherd Center calls my husband's cell phone and says, Mr. Tabler, I don't know how this happened, 
but I'm never losing your name and phone number because if I ever get hurt and I need someone to pray for me, I'm calling you. Annie has a bed at Shepherd Center. It was amazing. Um, and it was all God-driven because 24 hours before we were told no. Um, and so Annie was, um, she was in ICU until Saturday, Sunday. They transferred her Sunday. Um, by that time we had realized that she could um, at least pivot on her right side and help us get in and out of a wheelchair. The recovery she was making was absolutely phenomenal. And by Thursday, they were making arrangements for her to go to Shepherd Center. So, seven, ten days after her traumatic brain injury um, that was so severe that her brain was on the outside of her head, she's headed to Shepherd's, talking, carrying on a conversation. There was deficits. We knew that. But we also knew that God was going to work through the rehab to help overcome those deficits. And um, before she left, the doctors from the ER, the doctors from ICU came to see her. None of them could believe that she was sitting up in her bed and carrying on a conversation. And one of the ER doctors pulled me out in the hallway and she said, Annie will not have any memory of me at all but I want you to know I was in that ER and there is no reason why your daughter should be alive medically. There's no reason why except that God performed a miracle in her life. And it is just wonderful to be able to see her and know that God's had his hand on her. So we made the transition to Shepherds. It was rough. Um, because Shepherds has their rules and regulations, didn't want me to help her get out of bed or transfer to the wheelchair or anything like that, even though I'm a nurse. And so we had to work through that kind of stuff. But um, the very first day of therapy, Annie had told us she was going to walk. And, and sure enough, they, the first day of therapy, they started her on Friday. Um, at the end of the day, it was about 4 o'clock, she looked at her therapist and said, aren't you going to try and see if I can walk? And the therapist says, you really think you can do this? And Annie says, I know I can. But you have to understand that with traumatic brain injuries, a lot of times a patient thinks they can do something when they can't. Um, and it's part of the cognitive damage of a brain injury. But anyway, they said, okay, let's give it a go. They got a special walker hooked up her arm, they put a special electronic um, device on her left leg that would send um, the electrical stimulation to her muscles, and they had a therapist sitting behind her on a stool, and they had two therapists on each side, plus the company representative that had the neural stimulator and was controlling her leg. And she took about 20 steps with lots of assistance. <laughs> But she took about 20 steps, and I remember her looking at her dad and, and, and me and as if to say, see, I told you I was going to walk. Um, and it just, day by day by day, we saw God work in miraculous ways with her, things that we couldn't believe, things that we couldn't explain, things that the doctors couldn't explain. 
and we knew that it was because God had his hand on her. I'll let Annie um, explain some of the things that she experienced personally herself. Now, I can honestly tell you, while my brain was outside of my head, they're telling my parents I won't remember anything. I remember that nurse who kept screaming out my name when I wasn't responding, and he kept calling me, Ann, Ann, I don't, if you, if you know me, I don't go by Ann, that's my real name, but you call me Annie. I hate the name Ann, and I will never forget him screaming Ann at me. And I remember Mama coming up to me and talking to me in my ear and telling me to be strong. And I remember thinking, why do they keep talking? That's why I did the sign language that said, I love you. I'm thinking, why do they keep talking to me? I can't talk back. I've got a tube down my throat. Like, like duh, guys. Which is why I did sign language. And they said I wouldn't remember anything. I was on propofol and all the drugs that killed Michael Jackson stuff that should have had me completely not remembering a thing. And I can remember everything up until going to the Shepherd Center. I lost my memory from the night of the accident, and that was the only part of my memory that I probably will never get back. And then once I got, like, I was waking conscious when I got to the Shepherds, and I remember, you know, I wasn't, you know, I realized my left arm, my left leg was paralyzed at the time, and I was, of course, extremely frustrated because I had my life planned out. I was going to be the assistant volleyball coach at the college in the fall, and once I graduated, you know, I was wanting to go to Marietta High and be the head coach of the girls, and I was going to be an education teacher and all this. And I remember waking up one Sunday morning. We were getting ready for that Shepherd Center had a chapel, so we were getting ready to go to chapel. Um, they can take you actually in your wheelchair down there, so I was going to go to chapel that morning with Mom. And I remember laying in bed and pulling down the TV. And never in my life have I ever watched, y'all know the preachers, Joel Osteen preachers on TV Sunday mornings. Never had I watched one a day in my life because I just thought they were a joke. You know, here's some holy water for my bathroom. It's fifty nine ninety nine. You know, I didn't, I just. Thought it was a joke, just a crock. But I remember before turning on the TV, talking to God for the first time in years, and just saying, you know, I was upset and crying, and, you know, saying, God, what am I going to do? I've lost everything. I can no longer play volleyball. I can't coach. This is going to be my life. This is my future. You know, I had lost it all. You know, I'd lost friends. I hadn't seen anybody. I just thought my life was over, and this was it for me. And, and God echoed these words in my heart and in my brain. You know, God told me, he said, let go and let God. And my daddy had preached that many times growing up and never have I ever thought about it since I heard him preach it at church and didn't think nothing of it. I'm like, okay, let go, let God. Really, it didn't shock me at all that I, that God had brought that to me because I'd heard it so much growing up. But then I turn on the TV and Joel Osteen is on. Like I said, never had heard him. And his sermon, of course, was on let go and letting God, which I thought was, well, isn't this weird? It's a little ironic. You know, God, okay, you're trying to tell me something now that he's preaching on letting go and letting God. And I didn't think anything else about it until that point. We went to chapel. We had a good service, came back to the room. And that next Monday morning, right before therapy, we went around to get our mail. And Mama wheeled me around to the little mail center in my wheelchair. And I was just going through my mail. And in my pile was a letter from Oklahoma. I've never been to Oklahoma you know, I barely know where it is. I know it's in the United States. I don't know anyone. I've never met one person from Oklahoma. So I thought, this is cool. So I opened up this letter from Oklahoma. And in this letter, it's a card. But what fell out of this card was a little crocheted pocket. And in this little pocket, I pulled out a little piece of paper. And it was a poem. And of course, the poem was entitled, Letting Go and Let God. That was a prayer pouch to put all your prayers to let go and let God. And as soon as I saw that, I just dropped it. And I was like, all right, this is confirmation of what God was telling me. Wow, you know, this is amazing. God actually spoke to me. He really wants me to you know, let go and let God. And Mom looks at me like, you know, what is, what's, you got a letter, you know, what's the big deal? And I told her what all God had told me and how 
this is what I know I needed to do to let go of all my fear, all my frustrations, and let him have everything. Because up to this point in my life, I had held it all in and was so full of resentment and hate towards God. And then I, um, I remember talking to my dad and mom not long later, and I remember telling them, you know, why did God let this happen? Why didn't I die? So many of the people, they die. Why am I still alive? I don't understand. Why am I here and so many people have died? And so I dug into my Bible and I started flipping through. And then I remembered it's all about a thing called grace. It was all about God's grace. You know, this, well, he, was, he saved me because he loved me. Not because I deserved it. Not because anything I had done was right at this point in my life. Because he loved me and he was going to use me. And that just, for whatever reason, even being born and raised in the church, it just a light bulb went off in my head. You know, wow, God is, wow, God is awesome. God is really good. He's, you know, going to use me and he's going to change me. And, and it just, I was so on fire from God from that point on. You know, he talked to me and I really truly understood what it meant to follow God and to allow him to have everything. Hmm. I want to ask you a thing about uh, when, she, during when she was in the hospital and that is, uh, being in a really sort of tragic moment, there's a weird sort of dichotomy where on one hand it kind of tests your faith and you sort of accentuates doubt, but on the other hand, the closer you get to death, the more um, it kind of builds faith and it kind of clarifies uh, things in a way that nothing else does, that it just makes things simpler on what's important and what isn't and uh, you know what's eternal and what it is and it just kind of like but there's a weird mixture of things where on one hand uh, you know it sort of elevates it can elevate like doubt and stuff and then on the other hand it sort of elevates faith the, the opposite of that like anyway what was the mixture of things for you during that time you know it, it's really ironic um, I'm a typical mother um, when it comes to um, raising our children dad was a strong one mom was the one who would fall apart when the kids were sick or I was frightened but this particular time we had exact opposite roles um, Tim fell apart as her father he felt so out of control and I um, I was a strong one and he'll tell you that um, the only thing I can explain is God picked me up and said, I'm here. Cheryl, I'm here. That conversation with Pat at the beginning of all this, whenever my faith would falter, God would always bring me back to that moment. I have a plan. She was chosen. I'm in control. And I had to I had to really hold on to that. Um, and, and he just, like I said, there were things that happened day by day by day by day that drew me so close to him in a way that I never imagined my relationship with him um, to grow and and to be my relationship as a Christian with God was traumatically changed from this and not in the negative in the in the positive um, I think probably my husband struggled a little bit um, and I think maybe that's why God spoke to him in an audible voice to get his attention and say, look, buddy, you got to hang on to me. You got to trust me. Um, and like I said, day by day by day, 
one other strange thing that happened, and, and I'm not sure why I need to say this, but I'm going to. Um, one day that I was walking back to ICU at, at Atlanta Medical Center, there was a gentleman there, in, um, and he had a push broom. And he stopped me and said, Is your daughter at the end of the hall? And I told him, Yes, sir. He says, Well, God wants you to know it's going to be okay. You just need to trust him. And I said, well, thank you for telling me that. The man had a completely different uniform from anybody that I had witnessed in the hospital. I never saw him again. There was nobody with me to verify who, who he was or what he looked like. I'm almost wondering if it wasn't an angel. I, I don't know, but um, I know that God used that instant to, to just remind me. Again, I'm in control and you need to trust me. Um, so anybody that's listening to this, don't ever give up hope. Um, that's such a big thing. And, and whether you've ever given your life to Christ or not, God loves you. And there's always hope. He's, he's in control. There's always a reason, even if we don't understand it. Um, later on in our story, um, I struggled with my faith. We can get into that later. but Yeah, um, yeah let's talk about that. Okay, four years after um, this accident, Annie and, and, and her fiancé, he's now her husband, and I went to um, a little Dollar General store, and we were helping my other daughter out with school supplies. We were on our way home, beautiful sunny day. Can I stop you? Yes. Before we get to that, I want you to realize, this is four years after I was paralyzed on my left side. I was back to driving again. I could walk. My left hand, I'm still having trouble opening and closing it, but I was getting back to life. I was driving. I was even able to wear kitten high heels, which were like half an inch high, which was a big deal to me because I love my heels. You know, I was doing unremarkably well. No one could understand. Mom and I had been speaking at churches all over Greensboro. I spoke at youth conventions about what God had done in my life. I mean, we were doing everything we could to give God praise for all of this. So then let's go back to where we're leaving okay. the store. So four years later, Annie, Annie was driving. Her fiancé, now husband, was in the passenger seat of the car. I was in the back seat. We're driving down the road, driving towards home after being at Dollar General. And um, we get about a, maybe a mile and a half away from our home. And all of a sudden, there's this loud, to me it sounded like um, a bomb going off. But a huge, huge boom kind of shook me for a second. I realized that windows had been broken out of our car, um, had shattered, and, and I, I screamed out what happened, and James says, a tree fell down on top of the car. Now, the whole time that this is going on, our car is meandering down this country road. Annie is unconscious at the wheel. And... Um, you know, I start screaming at James, get the car stopped, get the car stopped. We realized Annie was hurt really, really bad. Um, and James was able to, he literally reached over, took her foot off the gas, meandered the car, steered the car over to the side of the road, Pulled and got it, got it uh, into park, and we were calling the ambulance. Neighbors who had heard something going on, they were calling for help. Um, I jumped out of the car, reached my hands through the broken uh, driver's side window. The, the windshield was completely shattered. 
But Annie was laying over on her left side. Being a nurse, I, I realized her neck was broken. She had a huge laceration also on the side of her head. And it was extremely quiet. And I realized that she wasn't breathing. And I, I'm praying and, and saying, God, help me know what to do. If I touch her, I may end her life. If I don't touch her, she's going to die. Um, so I very carefully lifted her head up off her shoulder, put my hands around the back, laced them around the back of her neck as if she had a what we call a C-collar to stabilize her neck. I used my thumbs to open up her jaw and got her breathing. Um, she regained consciousness really fairly quickly, was able to ask what happened. I told her that um, a tree had fallen down on top of the car. She was hurt. It was, I suspected, a spinal cord injury and that she needed to do exactly as I told her, not to move out of my hands, not to try and jerk away. And um, she's pretty much writhing in pain. She was telling me she hurt so bad and and had asked, had asked me about James. Was he okay? And I said, yeah, honey, he's fine. He had to walk around the car so that she could see him and know that he was okay. James was not hurt. I was not hurt outside of some little cuts from broken glass. Other than that, we were fine. Annie was traumatically injured. Um, we find out later once we get her to the trauma hospital um, in Athens that she suffered another traumatic brain injury. She had fractured her skull from her jawline all the way around her face and down the back of her skull. The um, neurosurgeon told us when you looked at x-rays and CT scans, it looked as if her skull was just nothing but a big spider web. It was just crackled. Um, and she had broken her neck. I was absolutely right about that. C1 and C2 was completely smashed. Um, those are the two vertebrae that should have you paralyzed and ventilator dependent if you live through it um, because those give life. It's right at the brain stem. Um, her injuries were very severe. Um, if you're old enough to remember the original Superman, Christopher Reeve, he had lost his C2. That's the exact same neck injury that I had mm -hmm. suffered from this tree falling on me. We um, found out later that the broken broken bones in her neck um, did not sever the um, cord, her spinal cord, but they told us at Shepherd Center that even all the bleeding, the hematoma they call it, that formed on her spinal column should have paralyzed her. Um, and so my faith wavered at that second point because I'm thinking, okay, God, why her? She's worked so hard to get a life back. I was in the back seat. I'm ready to meet you. I've watched my grandchildren be born. Um, I have a good life insurance policy. My husband and, and Annie will be very well taken care of. Why her? You could have taken me. Why her? And um, so my faith really wavered. Um, once she w was stabilized enough to do surgery to um, stabilize that neck, she has metal rods 
down the back of her neck um, on both sides of her spine. The neurosurgeon told us that um, the only reason she survived taking a hit that strong because the G-force was so, so strong, um, the only reason she survived it at all was because of her first accident four years prior. The prior injury in her brain had left room on the right side of her head that when she was injured on the left side of her head, it allowed the swelling to go back and forth without causing major, major brain damage mm -hmm. um, ab above and beyond what she had already suffered. The doctor looked at us and said, had that tree come down on you or come down on James, it would have killed you instantly. I have no doubt about that. Mm. My brain literally shifted nine millimeters to the right. And the neurologist says, you do not survive a four millimeter shift. So it was more than double shifted in my head from the impact. Mm. What do you say to someone who, you know, just doesn't believe in God at all? And, um, yeah, there are just so many people in that boat that... Uh, I think it's silly not to address them. Mm -hmm. And it's a weird thing where I do believe in free will, so um, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that God's um, sole purpose is to just sort of move everything around in my favor. But I also have do know the feeling of when God is speaking to you internally, and the I just know that feeling and how sort of convincing that moment is um and how it's just obviously it's a very hard thing to describe but i know i know um what that feels like um yeah so just I, I, okay so there there's two things here uh on one hand there will be a huge group of people that just don't believe anything that you're saying really mm -hmm. on the other hand and and they have fair points because it's all you know, right. they're all just saying, let's right. work out this logic. Right. On the other hand, um, as a person who uh, believes in the sovereignty of God, I don't want to be the type of person that tells him where he can't go and what he can't do. So this is the weird, like, contradiction where, again, like, whether the miracle was physically him or him working through the expertise of the doctor or whatever kind of doesn't matter. The main thing for me when it comes to faith is that God has Works. compassion for every human yep. being. And it doesn't matter if we all die or none of us do or whatever. <laughs> Regardless of anything that happens, uh, that is the one big thing. That, um, that God has compassion for every human being. And that he, again, this is not a, not a thing that can be proven, but the times that I felt closest to God, I felt like there was the one last missing piece being mm -hmm. put in. And it mm -hmm. feels so... It just feel you feel so at ease and so sort of peaceful. It just feels like everything is clicked in its right place. It's a really weird thing, but that's one of the reasons I believe in God is that I believe that it is um, the natural design of humans to um, to know where they came from and to believe that they came from somewhere and to be known by the thing that they came from and that they were created by. Um, and again, my reasoning for that is the times that I felt that I was hearing God most clearly, um, I felt so at peace and things were so in the right order. It wasn't chaotic. It was, I had no desire for um, this sort of, just like the, 
the things that would normally, sins that would normally be attractive to me lost their sort of luster or whatever. And that, you know, when you're in that moment, the experience of being in that moment is so clear that, uh, that it's like a hard thing to deny. But just having said all of that, just what are, what is your take on the, you know, the, the difference between free will and, um, and God being able to perform a miracle, just that sort of dichotomy? You are, you are absolutely right. God created us with a free will. He doesn't, and this is, this took Annie through her recovery period to realize, um, that God didn't punish her. She thought that all this happened because she had that abortion. Mm. Um, and we talked a lot about um, God's forgiveness, His grace, how that sometimes the hardest ones to forgive or to give forgiveness is ourselves. Um, and, and my thought to someone who, who would say, I don't believe any of this, um, I can tell you I, I totally understand why you wouldn't believe it. Because a lot of what we're telling you is unbelievable. There's no explanation, um, whether it's medically or spiritual. Um, I do believe that um, I do believe that God uses everything in our lives to draw us closer to Him. But I also believe um, that the flip side of that is evilness that that tries to defeat us, to keep us from building a relationship with God. And I, and I always tell people, it's okay to get angry. It's okay to question God and say, why? Um, and I remind them that Jesus on the cross, in his humanity, cried out to God and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows where we're at when we feel like if there's a God out there, he's turned his back on me. Um, whether you're a believer or not, um, you know, Jesus felt that too. Um, and it was witnessed by people who heard him cry out from the cross. He was there. And I always tell folks, you know, if you're angry, tell God about it. Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Take it to Him and tell Him, you know, God, I'm so angry. I don't know what to do with my anger. Uh, I don't understand this. Please help me make sense of this. And somehow, He He takes your doubts and your fears and your anger and your questions, and He brings about a peace that only He gives. I, I can't explain it. Um, I, I, I don't have any rational except that when it happens to you, you know it um, and you feel it. Our story is exactly that. It's our story. I can't explain why things happened the way they did. I wouldn't try to, um, but I know it happened because I was there. I witnessed it. Um, our children witnessed it. Um, our, our church family witnessed it. People across the world were praying for us when we were going all up through all this, even the second accident. Um, you know, it's just sometimes when you um, when you go through a traumatic experience, you feel like um, if there's any faith at all, you feel like you're not able to hang on 
And I tell people, you know what? If the only thing you can do is hang on to God with your little fingers, hang on for all you're worth. Because God will walk you through that process until you're able to hang on to him with both hands and to hang on tight and to realize that he's never really let you go. I, I don't know if that answered it. Mm. Um, well, it's just... It's not a thing that can be answered. No, right. it's, so it's not. It's a question it's I have to ask, but it's a question yeah. that is not really an answer. Yeah. Because, again, the person, a cynic would say, well, all these mm -hmm. horrible things happened to me and God didn't fix any of them. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I have a friend that's in a wheelchair for life and I love him. He's a very close friend of mine. He's very smart and funny and wonderful. And I would look at that and go, okay, if God just, like, plays everything and moves everything out of your way, then why is he in a wheelchair for life? And, um, again, that's a, that's a rational thing to ask, but, um, at the end of the day, I sort of come to the point where let's say God doesn't involve himself at all with physically changing the events of earth. Mm -hmm. I'd still believe in, in him just like I do mm -hmm. now. Like it just wouldn't change that much, um, mm -hmm. about what I believe, um, because of the big things, uh, you know, the sort of core of why I believe in God wouldn't change even if the world uh, turned separately from his interaction of it. Because um, the times that I was closest to him, everything on the outside stayed the same, but I cared less than ever that it didn't get any better or whatever. I just didn't care about it really um, because I was so, internally I was so different and was in just such a different place that um, the other stuff just didn't really matter. Um, but all that to say, like I didn't get a new car, I didn't get a new car. Uh, things weren't, on the outside, things were not better when internally things were the best they ever were. Mm -hmm. And so, but because I've had both experiences where the outside didn't change, but the inside did change, mm -hmm. um, that's kind of built my, just my, um, where, where I'm at on all that. But, um, Anyway, I know that's a really, you know, that's a difficult area to go into, yeah. but one of my desires with this is to address, always address your critics, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I see this lacking within uh, Christianity mm -hmm. where, you know, um, let's take like politics or whatever, uh, on either side, everyone is always calling your bluff, and that's a good thing because it makes you cut the fat. It makes you mm -hmm. go, oh yeah, actually, that was a lie when I said that. Mm -hmm. And this part is true, but that part was like an overstatement. Mm -hmm. I was kind of lying about this part. When you're always being called out on stuff, mm -hmm. it sharpens you. And I think we need, or just in my opinion, we need more of that within our faith where um, we just need more openness, more accountability mm -hmm. or whatever. And, um, yeah, I just think that when you, when you allow, when you address your critics, all your points become stronger. And if you ignore the people that don't believe you, then, you know, you just, you take a huge part of the audience, uh, and you just like leave them out, you know, whereas if you go, if you address head on all the people, all your critics, um, it makes the points you're making stronger in my opinion. Um, and I will say, this yeah. is, and Annie can back it up, um, even with our faith being strengthened and even with our relationship with God being changed and even with Annie's healing being probably more from a spiritual stand side, standpoint than, than a physical, it's not been easy. It's never easy to go through a traumatic event in life 
Um, it's never easy to accept a new normal. But I can tell you from experience that God is there. And he gives you the strength. I tell people you never know how strong you can be until you're called upon to be strong. I never would have thought in our situation that I would have been the one to stand up and be strong and my husband would be the one to falter. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's just, it's totally against the grain of, of how our relationship has always been. Right. Um, Annie can probably tell you a little bit more about, about her healing. She had days. She didn't want to go to church. She didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want this. She didn't want that. She had the blues. She did a lot of crying. There you were know. days, you know, I contemplated suicide, even though I know God loved me and saved me. There were days I just was done, thrown mm-hmm. in the towel, and I can't do this. And I actually, speaking on what you talked about before, I had a friend who was not a believer from college who sent me an email through all this with the first accident, before the second one even happened. And he said, please tell me, how in the world can you believe in a God that lets you have this accident? You know, it allowed you to go, if you say you have a God, he allowed you to go through all this suffering. And you're saying, you know, it was a miracle, but he allowed it. How can you believe in a God that's good if he allowed it? And the only way I could answer that was I told him, you know, I'm not going to say his name, but I just said, you know, what you don't know about me is since I've been at Reinhardt, I was miserable. I hated my life. I was like, I'd gone through a lot of things that nobody knew. You know, there were nights I'd cry myself to sleep and I drank, you know, to just cover all that up and I partied so I didn't have to think about it. I said, but the peace that I found through all of this, even through all the physical struggles, emotional struggles, it was something that I could not, I mean, I can't even put into words the peace that I found in my life. And mm-hmm. and I can tell anyone, whether you're a believer or not, if you let go and let God and just allow his will to be done, whether you're going through something physical or emotional, he will use you and your story to reach other people or to show you what, what you were created for, what you were meant to do in life. and. Mm-hmm. I think this is a divide between um, between the two groups. Like, uh, I was thinking about the last time I was mm-hmm. at a funeral, and that for a normal person goes <laughs> that goes to a funeral, the whole time they're at the funeral, their brain is telling them like, "Don't think about dying. Don't think about dying. Don't think about dying." <laughs> and in uh, the last time that I was at a funeral, it like it just like I felt better when I left. Like it clarified like things that. Um, it just clarified things about life that were more and less important, and and uh, there's something about uh, being a, a follower of Christ that it because you believe in eternity, it uh, it just puts things in order and it brought peace. It was a peaceful moment after the funeral, um, and I felt like I said I literally felt um, better afterwards because of the sort of um, clarity that came through thinking past death. And, uh, and how that impacts what life is. Whereas if you, you know, if you can't let yourself think about that, if you, if death is a a thing that you perpetually try to not look at, um, that not only does it rob all of life from any, like, lasting meaning, really, um, but it's a thing you have to continually try to not think about and do anything to not think about. Um, yeah, so what is your, uh... What is your sort of um, day-to-day life? Um, I don't want to say now, but um, yeah. So, like, what are the things that you struggle with now, having been through all of that stuff? Um, You know, I think a part of... For people that are really 
um, in a bad place and staying in a bad place because they don't, they kind of are in a mental rut. They see someone that's doing good and they just, from the outside, and they just go, well, that person's good and I'm bad or that person's rich and I'm poor uh, or whatever. And they don't see the fight that is going on inside the life of that person to maintain and to to um, stay where they are and to keep going forward. But for someone in your shoes, what is that, you know, what is the sort of um, struggle that is within a normal day or within a normal week or whatever? Um, yeah, just, uh, and you can answer this however you want, whether physically or, you know, or more like spiritually or just however you want to answer that. Well, I know for me, what kept me going, and this is the, one of the promises, you know, that God had given me, positive thoughts bring life. If you're in a rut, don't sit there and dwell on the negative. I can sit here every day and dwell on, oh, my left hand doesn't work right. I'll never run again. I can never jump again. I mean, but I don't, I, cho I choose, I make the choice not to dwell on what I can't do. Instead, I dwell on the things that I can do. You know, I've, I'm getting ready to start a full-time job. I can do that. I've gone back to get my my pastoral license, you know, I can reach others. I can use what God has brought me through to help reach others for him. You know, dwell on the positive things in your life. Don't look so much at the negative. Yeah. Um, what would you say to someone who is in the middle of something tragic right now? It doesn't have to be, like, outwardly <laughs> tragic, but it could just be an internal, very painful thing. Um, but, but this is, I guess, for either one of you or both of you, but... Yeah, just what do you say to someone who's in the middle of the tragedy right now? I, I, my, my thoughts are... Sometimes we have to take things one day at a time to sort through them, to process them. Sometimes that day at a time is even too overwhelming. And I've told people, you know what? When a day at a time is too overwhelming, <coughs> break it down to an hour at a time. And if the hour at a time is too overwhelming, break it down to minutes. Um, you know, I, I set, set time limits, literally. I've gotten through, I've gotten through six hours today. Hmm. Um, you can look back and... and and encourage yourself on, here's another day. I've made it. Um, and be totally honest before God mm. because um, he'll help you work through that. I, I remember Annie crying and, and saying, you know, I'm so ugly now. That just broke my heart. Mm. Um, and, I, and I remember telling her, Annie, I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know God will bring peace to you through all this hmm. yeah you're just gonna have to trust him even if it's just day by day and I remember her saying well that's easy for you to say this didn't happen to you it happened to me and I said but that's where you're wrong this this happened to me too this happened to all of us in our family something we walked through together um, and it took her probably about two years before she had that conversation with her friend on you know I'm, I'm more at peace now than I ever was when I was able to play volleyball, when I was able to coach, when I was able to, you know, do all the things that I did prior to to using losing the the use of my left hand. I'm at peace, and 
And that really just thrilled my heart because I had told her, God would bring you peace through all this if you trust him. And it, and it took a while. It, it took a while. It was a journey. Um, and life is that way. Life is a journey. And, and my advice would be surround yourself with people who are going to be positive mm -hmm. and bring you up. Yeah. I mean, I cannot reiterate enough how much my church family got me through on the days on Sundays where I just I hated life and I was down and I didn't want to go on I had a little lady from church she would call me it made me so angry the day of because she'd call me texting where are you at why aren't you here I missed you you need to come back and granted while then it made me angry I look back now in hindsight and that's the people that kept me going the people that encouraged me to keep fighting and to know that God was on my side you know get those good people behind you who are going to help you my husband now and my mom are my biggest supporters and days there are days that stink and that you know my neck just hurts and I'm tired and they both you know are the ones that keep me going and remind me you need to you know pray and talk to God you know if you're struggling he's brought you this far he's not going to fail you now and the reality of, of a traumatic brain injury and, and then complicated by a spinal cord injury is learning how to accommodate physically um, she's had to learn how to dress one handed how to put on she's got jewelry on she did that one-handed. Um, sometimes she has to have help. Hey, James, can you put this bracelet on me? I can't get it on my hand. Um, so she's had to learn how to accommodate. So there are things that you adjust to with your new normals. Um, but she was able to learn how to drive again. And she was able to get off a of disability and, and her social security. Um, and, and to realize that she could live a successful life mm. even with the the remaining effects of of her traumatic injuries um yeah tell me about your decision to do that because i think whether actually um whether someone actually being on disability or social security mm -hmm. and all that or just using that as a allegory there's so many people where they get um they get to a point where they're just barely getting by mm -hmm. But they've seen so much worse that they don't push for any better because it's so much. It's so hard to keep pushing for anything better, for a better job, for just a better version of life. And when you're afraid of how much worse it could get, the like painful middle area is kind of enticing. But just tell me about your decision to to walk away from disability and all that, and and your why you did that. Well, it all started when, after I'd broken my neck, I was still living at home with mom and dad. And I had turned 30 years old, and I just said, you know, I'm ready. I need to live out on my own. I need to know what I can do by myself and what I can't. It's not realistic for me to think mom and dad can do everything for me the rest of my life. Granted, I'm disabled, but I'm an adult, and I want to try it. So I, you know, my nickname growing up, I was always, in the Shepherd Center, they called me the Renegade. Because when they told me I couldn't walk, I got up and I would be walking anyways. Nothing that would hurt me, but I've never been one to just settle for anything in life. And I told my parents that I wanted to move out. The church actually had a house for rent, and I talked to my best friend who was a single mom, and I was like, hey, do you want to live with me in this house and we'll split rent? Well, needless to say, my daddy wasn't too happy about it. You can't do this, Anne Marie. You know, you need to stay with us. And I just took it on. I knew what I needed to do to get ahead in life. I was have never been comfortable just settling. It's just not my personality. So I 
decided I was going to move out of mom and dad's house. Mom was on my side. Mom's, you know, was always pushing me and telling me, you know, you do whatever you want to do. And if you can't do it, then I'll help you pick up the pieces and we'll go back to do what we have to do. So I moved in with my best friend and realized, hey, you know, I can do this. I can live on my own. I, if I didn't know how to do something, I learned. I taught myself how to do it. Definitely wasn't always easy. But then I, you know, started working a little bit here and there. And I was like, well, I have the ability to work too. Hmm. And when you're living on your own, only getting $700 a month disability, paying bills and rent. I was like, this is a stupid, horrible way to live. I can't do this forever. This is rough. You know, I didn't want to be on you know, food stamps forever and relying on the government. It was, it's hard. It's not easy. People who think it's easy, it's very difficult. And I knew I had more in me. And through my prayer group at church, a lady, one of her friends had started a business where, we, where she was actually working with disabled people to help them find jobs and go back to work. And through my education education in college, I had taken classes on special ed and had actually wanted to minor in special ed to work with people with special needs. And my friend said, Amy, you'd be awesome at this. You know, you have the heart for it. You know, you love people. And, and so I just, even though I was a little scared, you know, I prayed about it and thought a lot about it and said, do I want to, you know, go ahead and start working? And I had no, I knew I wanted to get married and move out of this house that rented and go on with my life. Mm-hmm. So I just decided, you know, that this, I went and talked to the lady with the business and I decided this is what I want to do. I want to help other people who are, you know, not as fortunate as me, who can't live on their own, who can't drive a car, who want to work and want to have a better life. And that for me is what got me to where I am working with these people. I, you know, drove all over the state of Georgia to work with young adults. I'd say 90% of them couldn't drive did live at home with their mom and dad, but knew they wanted more for their lives. You know, I wasn't the only one who had felt that. And being able to reach them and help them and watch them succeed brought me so much confidence mm. and helped push me forward. And we ended up ended up going and getting married mm. about six months after I started my first part. This, this was only a part-time job. Some weeks full-time, mostly just part-time. I decided to get married. We moved out of town about 45 minutes away from where mom and dad lived and my whole family was you can't do this it was a lot of negative they said that I was not going to be strong enough you know she can't do this mom she's disabled which to me I just it frustrated me but I know what I can and I can't do and I'm not one you know, if I help all these other people get on their feet why can I do it for myself and in, and in practical terms I remember sitting down with Annie with a piece of paper and a calculator we pulled up the calculator on our phone and said okay Let's let's think about this. You're getting seven hundred and forty some dollars a month SSI, and so many dollars a month in food stamps. It wasn't a whole lot in food stamps, but um, I said so. Let's break that down into what you're getting per week. And if you worked a part time job, and let's say you worked fifteen hours a week, making ten dollars an hour, this is what you get over a month and when she seen it written down on paper it was like mom I think I could do this and I said and when you realize you can handle the 15 hours up it up Mm. amp it up Mm. when you realize you can handle that um, you know keep pushing yourself Mm. Um, I said your body will tell you physically if you can't do it you'll figure that out pretty quick Um, so she you know she did and give up the disability and and um 
you know, I'm real proud of her because uh, the job that she has now working for the state is in vocational rehab with other, mm-hmm. for other disabled adults. And there's um, so much personal honor that comes with earning anything. Yes. Absolutely. And that's mm-hmm. robbed from you when anything is given to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that really embodies uh, everything I wanted to um, this podcast to be, and that is your the, the step to to try to have as much of a normal life again and to have a better life um, was you pushing for what is the absolute max uh, potential that I can get out of where I am and that is the, that is diametrically opposed to what is most comfortable or what mm-hmm. is just what's comfortable. Um, most people, sometimes without even noticing it, they just go for whatever is comfortable. So. I'll date this girl because she's here mm-hmm. and I'm here, or um, just whatever's around right now. I'll do the drug because it's here and I'm here and I'm bored and my friend's doing it. It's mm-hmm. everything is immediate gratification mm-hmm. because underlying that is this um, implication that whatever the best version of you is, that well I couldn't have that anyway, so I might as well take this. I couldn't have a good marriage. I couldn't have a good life. And all this like idealistic stuff that I thought when I was younger about being happily married and being successful and all that. Since I can't have any of that, I might as well take whatever's right here. And then just completely acting on impulse. And then all the sort of destruction that comes from that, from acting on impulse. But the, um, the spirit to go, we're going to absolutely max every area of what my life can be. Um, and regardless of the fact that it may be the most painful version of this, is it the best version? And if it is, then let's do whatever it takes to have that. And, uh, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been, uh, this has been really great. And, uh, any closing, any, anything you want to say, any closing thoughts? Um, yes, if you are interested in learning more about the first accident where my brain was knocked out of my head, you can look up my video on YouTube. It is called Annie's Car Accident, and you'll see the picture of a girl with a scar on her head, and mm. you'll know that's mine. It's got over almost half a million views, and it has been banned in some countries overseas <laughs> because of the Christian impl- implications behind it, and I do oh, encourage wow. you to check it out. And she mm. wrote, and she put that on YouTube uh, six months after her accident, and, and you watch it, and you think, oh, this girl's brain was on the outside of her head um, mm. six months prior to doing this. I don't, I don't think I could still put... A YouTube video on uh, you know online but she did in spite of the injuries and and you know you truly need to God put eternity in each of our hearts that um, that's that's a direct quote from Ecclesiastes and 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 I think that that has a desire in all of us that's ingrained we were created that way uh, reach out reach out to grab a hold of God. Um, the New Testament tells us to work out your your salvation with fear and trembling because when you make yourself open and available to God, He'll meet your needs. Mm. He'll meet you where you're at. Um, and, and He picked us up and, and He met us where we were at. He's working some tremendous things. Um, whoever thought a, a little family from originally Indiana and then a little town in Greensboro, Georgia, would have a half a million people watching mm. a video, you know, that was put on YouTube. Who would have ever thought? I would not, 
I would not have ever thought that. But God takes what you have, what you're willing to give, and He uses it. Mm. Um, and, and I promise, no matter what you're facing in life, um, He'll walk you through it. He'll be there. Mm. Well, thank you so much. We will see you guys two weeks from now. <laughs> Amazing. Take some time.